Hello and welcome to Danish Wireless the Cities ABC YouTube podcast Thought Leadership channel. We're a platform focused on profiling the global leading, inspiring people, leaders, CEOs, authors, technologists, and academics. We align the ideas, products, inventions, software, books, and solutions to the multiple challenges and opportunities we face in our cities and nations with the advent of Society 5.0, digital transformation, 4AR, AI, blockchain, fintech, IoT, and more. We have passed in the last months uh, over 2 million views and 20,000 subscribers. And we are right now working to accelerate, but as well to portray a lot of different people that are part of the business ecosystem, the academic ecosystem, and part of the world, at least trying to create better projects, better companies, or continuing with companies that actually can create a better solution for the world. This video podcast and YouTube channel is part of the platform citiesabc.com, a new 4AR intelligent smart cities platform to reinvent cities and all of us and all of us citizens, and as well is distributed on citiesabc.com, openbusinesscouncil.org, intelligenthq.com, and Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and so forth. So, in a time of emergent tech disruption and in time in that we have so much issues with the natural environment, climate change, sustainability is critical. And as well, how business can actually cope with this, no matter what kind of business you are dealing with. So today we have with us someone that is part of a generation or business that have been looking at the bottling and supply chain, and as well a big complicated industry to change and to reverse. So today I welcome Andy Weinstein, that uh, understands distribution like few and as well comes from a generation of the uh, family generation industry on this area and has been working the first generation with brands like Pepsi, Dr. Pepper, Butler in the Pacific um, New West. He has a lifelong familiarity with the business dynamics of the industry, an industry that delivers physical goods day in day out across America and of course across the world because it touches all of us. Um, so he's the CEO and founded BDG, that is a company that is looking at delivery disruption and as well looking how we can actually look at the areas of bottling, which is a big thing uh, for our society, for our consuming society and as well for all of, of everyone of us. And how can we look at this? So and this family account for a huge slice of the $1.4 trillion distribution economy but he's trying to look at it in a different way that as well tries to go and see how can he reverse and build a new uh, system and new solutions in the areas of sustainability in this area. So it's a pleasure to have you here, Andy. Thank you. So I would like to, to start, um, and I think it's interesting in your case because you are uh, leading the business uh, and it's a family business, but as well you are an entrepreneur. And as well, you have different skills from digital to uh, supply chain, but as well having an experience and very focused right now in trying to create new solutions around your family business. So I would like to have a bit of a background because growing up in a family, three generations of business is a particular heavy <laughs> uh, place to be, but as well as an opportunity. And especially 
when you have a family traditional business to do changes sometimes is much bigger and much more difficult. So I would like to have a bit of your background. And as well, we are in Seattle. That is one of the leading, um, especially commercial and e-commerce places in the world with, the, with Amazon over there. You know, I grew up having the privilege of being kind of the son of a Pepsi bottler. So I got to see the inside of like how you, the, the product that you drink on a regular basis every day that gets to the convenience store and then gets into your hands and having the ability to kind of look into it, you realize there's a lot of things that can be fixed. Um, and so I've just always been very curious and played with Legos and always try to find solutions. And so now, now that I'm older, I'm still trying to find solutions. It's just that my Lego pieces are much more big, right? They're much bigger. And so the amount that we can change is, is more impactful. Um, but what's really interesting kind of having grown up in the industry is exposure. There are certain things that you can't replicate. Um, and I'm trying to take those things that I can't replicate and harness them and say, how can we do something that's really transformational and changes the way that we look at doing X, Y, Z. And so that's why I created Baller Distribution Group and kind of left my family business is because I saw the opportunity of taking a distribution platform and diversify it and modernize it. Pepsi is everywhere. You can buy a Pepsi all across the globe. And if you think about that distribution system, now adding food, beverage, janitorial supplies, medical supplies, PPE, and all of a sudden being a last mile delivery platform for all of the essentials, it can be very transformative. But to get there, you need to have technology to do so. And so what Butler Distribution Group is a combination of both the supply chain as a service, as well as the technology as a service. So we help the bottlers put product on their trucks, and we also help them with their technology to kind of get to the next step. So that's, that's a very ambitious, but a very important area. So this is kind of one of the industries um, that actually touch everything from supply chain to supermarkets to our society. But at the moment is still so plastic right now. There's a lot of studies that say that plastic is right now, actually they, you are, yeah, you have that problem there and in your image, which I think is important, but it's, it's a big thing because it touches not only the oceans where we have a lot of different areas of this. It touches as well the perception and the, even the way we eat and, and, and as well uh, behave. But at the same time, how do you go from this big problem that you have there and how we can actually, first of all, reverse engineer the issues that are already there and as well coming up to a new narrative and the new solutions that can actually come up um, to the best solutions, and especially which is the goal of your company. But I would like to understand how do you look at the traditional and the kind of the, all the legacy issues that we have One of the, 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 the big opportunities kind of that we see is there's a lack of feedback loops. Right now, the current industry is you have a person who manufactures, so it's the person who sells, right? All these different organ, like organizations and kind of parts of the supply chain are only operating in their own bubble. And so you have much like data and product moving one way, you also have a limit of that communication. 
So what we're essentially trying to do is create the feedback loops so that you can have a sustainable uh, kind of supply chain. And there is a secondary market for the garbage, like the waste of what we're producing. Because right now, almost everybody who sells a beverage or a snack or anything like that, their kind of limit of liability is to the consumer. And then they're like, it's not my problem what they do with our trash. But that trash needs to have a value for us to merit collecting it and then putting it back into our kind of waste stream. Um, and, and one of the things that I see very simply is Pepsi bottlers and distributors who go to people's business to drop off something, they're opening up air in their trucks. By dropping off product, there is now air in that truck. If we can find a way that we can say, it's gonna, it's, it will pay you two ways to pick up that trash or that recycling or that compost, and then therefore find different ways to do so. Um, that's the, the, the biggest problem is, is if you're selling plastic, you don't care about the byproducts. If you're selling um, pet, you need to buy the recycled plastics, which is difficult and more expensive, and you need to find a way to actually process it. And for most of the world, we kind of relied on China being a processor of recycled plastics. And that's kind of led it to a problem where nobody invested in the actual infrastructure needed to process all the plastic where we're producing on a daily basis. And so I just see that having kind of the opportunity to fill in the gaps between different stakeholders as the kind of that feedback loop and passing information back and forth rather than being stagnant one direction will enable us to start to build business models that validate recycling and composting and all the other works. So we can't do it through grants. We can't do it through philanthropy. It has to make financial sense to get into it so that there are financial people, like there's finance in that industry to do so. And right now the, the, the byproduct of waste is, is not fully kind of utilized. If you look at the stats, uh, they're a bit scared um, and uh, scary. And I think one of the, the biggest numbers, let, let's just look for some numbers. So I'm, I've been looking at some numbers preparing for the interview and we're seeing that since 1950s, around 8.3 billion tons of plastic have been produced worldwide. And mm -hmm. from these, we're talking about, and that's the most scary part, is that only 9% of it has been recycled. So just a very technical question, and I think now I'm, as, a, as someone that wants to learn, how do you, first of all, look at the 91% that are out there? Um, how do you solve, first of all, this problem? Because I think this is the first problem. I think for the future, there is, there's a lot of solutions, and I know that your company is, is working on that, and I have some questions on that, but I want to start this. So how do you solve the 91% um, part of the 8.3 billion tons of plastic that have been produced, and we clean this? you have to create a financial value to that product. Right now, trash is trash. And if it's plastic, if it's whatever, it's really hard to um, create a secondary uh, market 
that pulls that off of wherever it is. So if it's in the ocean and you want to pull that plastic into it, I mean, you want to make sure that you can pull it and sell it. Because right now, if you pull it, you're just a cost. So you need to have that revenue generation on the other side, which is why it's super important to develop an RPET market. It's important on a global level to say, hey, you need to have X percent in um, kind of recycled plastic inside this virgin plastic thing. So a plastic bottle, for example, getting more, it's going to get grainier because our pet does not, is not as clear as virgin plastic. So we need to start to adapt not only our behavior and kind of the whole financing and kind of business model of recycling, but we also, also as customers and consumers, we have to just get used to products looking slightly different because some of the things that give us the robust colors and the see-through are actually also bad. So to, how do we address this 91%, 90% of trash that are of recycled products that aren't being recycled? It's generate a market so that other people can start to contribute and bring it together. Because there is no way a single entity or single person is going to be able to make a dent into that 91% unless you're, you kind of spread out, let's say, that risk. And you spread out th that economic risk by saying, hey, look, there might be an opportunity to make money because this trash that before had a 10 cent deposit is now 25 cents. And so therefore, there's a huge gap where they, somebody can collect and make money off of it. If they're collecting making money, then there's gonna be a way that somebody has the ability to resell that product, sell that grinded product. So you just really have to build up the supply chain and build up the incentives along that supply chain to deal with the problem. It can't be a philanthropy solve. It can't be a, um, a Band-Aid solution. You need to make sure that the market, you have to lead the market to the answer. I think for I was looking at stats, and I think the average use or the time frame of using of a plastic bag is 12 seconds, so 12 minutes. So it's, it's kind of crazy. Um, so I think what, one of the, the questions, and I think, uh, I think like you said, is the financial incentives and that as well, to create a reverse model that, first of all, looks at this as, as a business that actually uh, there's a conscious, but as well that can actually start um, going through the process of cleaning and, and changing the physical solutions. So in your company, you're looking at three areas that are particularly interesting when it comes to the future of supply chain. So you have the focus on physical solutions, which is what I'm talking when it comes to plastic, but other different areas. Then you have supply chain as a service, and then you have digital solutions. So how do you deal with these three areas of uh, the focus of your company? The way that I look at kind of the physical products, the supply chain as a service, and then the digital solutions, which is really tech solutions, right? Because it's more than just a online thing. We, we want to bring in hardware and software and, and make things smarter. Um, it, the way that I look at it is, I'm approaching my same customer and saying, how can I solve as many problems that you have as possible? And how can I allocate the proper team to do so? Um, so if, if, if I'm going to a bottler who wants to diversify, but they're not ready for the modernization, you don't necessarily need to address the modernization. 
I see that really using the kind of the three pillars as the three different revenue streams that kind of control personal risk in our business. Most businesses are like most startups in general are kind of single revenue stream businesses in which are a solution trying to find a problem, right? They are, you know, I, I got this blockchain company that does XYZ. Does XYZ companies want this product? I don't know. They, there's, there's always trying to like mold what you have to what is needed rather than thinking back what is needed and let's build around that. And so that's kind of one of the big differences that our approach is, is we want to identify the problem and come up with a solution. And what our problem that we've identified is that the global supply chain is broken and does kind of does not take into account any of the needs of the stakeholders. And so how do we build a company that is focused on the stakeholders and how do you build a culture that is built on stakeholders and an entire supply chain? And that's really how I see it is we want to make sure that we as an entity mirror the, 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 the feedback loops that we get from our customers on how to improve them. So and coming from a traditional company that has a huge experience managing uh, one of the biggest uh, industry vertical special when it comes to beverage, plastic bottles, how do you see that continuity from the traditional business of your family and three generations to your new approach with your new company? Um, and as well, all these new products that you do, because you're not doing right now just uh, physical things you're doing as well, things related to the healthcare and other products. But I'm particularly interested to look at this traditional uh, experience that you were built or actually were growing into it until your new startup or a new organization that you are building right now. One of the, the, the big changes of going from a legacy business that is right now highly dependent on selling sugar, water, and plastic, right? Like the, if you think about the main asset of the beverage industry, it's a depreciating asset. Every brand and the, you're going to have different flavors, but over the total arc, the, the numbers, the, the volume numbers is decreasing. Um, and so I, I see it as a, a kind of taking the perspective of how do I de-risk my business that's right now associated to a depreciating asset and diversify it so that that risk is now spread out. And that's where I really see the, the solution is being is because instead of providing my customers just a service, we are de-risking their business model. Right. And, and that is the difference is because I fundamentally understand how their business model is put together and what makes it churn. I can also provide a solution so that it's not completely dependent on a brand because the truth is the brand Pepsi as a drink is very different than the brand PepsiCo and PepsiCo itself would probably want to kind of step away from having it's a brand associated with sugar water. So I, I think it, it's really about helping moving the entire industry into a direction and making sure we give them incentives to do so. And the incentive to do so is to de-risk, make more money and save on costs 
and get better technology. It's it's a really terrible value proposition for them. <laughs> so so I would like to go because I think um, I love the vision, but let's look at from the theory to the practice. Can you give an example? I think this is important for any business worldwide because I think the supply chain is the biggest uh, business in the planet because in the other day, everything is supply chain. But I think we have a massive challenge that like we discussed even before this call, first of all, we have a very strong lack of understanding about digital and data and even some of the basic stuff that for me and you are more or less normal. But most of the business, for instance, there's around 450 million SMEs and startups in the world around 90% don't even have a website. So it starts as simple as that. And most of them don't even know how to use very simple things. For instance, right now we, we are using Zoom for this conference, but we are talking about a lot of people, even governments that don't know how to use these platforms. And uh, I'm not going to mention examples, but some big ones. So I would like just to understand how do you put this in practice? Because I think the, the distribution industry is very sophisticated. Uh, if you're talking about big brands like Pepsi, and, and all these big corporations. But when it comes to the small, medium players, they don't have a clue and they're just going where things going. So how do you see this? And I think these, these ones are probably the ones that need more support. I, I, I think there's kind of two big kind of problems that you have with decision makers in industry of any sort, small, medium, large. It's data literacy and an understanding of technology, right? So the data literacy, for example, the amount of people that I see present to me data and then I ask, what's the data gap? What is the data bias? And what is the data collection bias? And they go, I have no idea. Well, then the data is totally useless. Because if I only went, you know, let's say I went, uh, polling is a very good example. If I only went to 10 houses and the 10 houses were all in the same block in the same neighborhood, they would, that, the result of that poll would be very skewed to a collection bias of that neighborhood. But if I did it 10 different locations and then repeated their neighbors and compared it with another kind of different location and try to do the neighborhood move, you could get a much more crisp picture of context. And, and that's what data literacy is really about, is understanding the context of the numbers. But we don't do that. We just pass on information blindly, assuming that somebody's gonna be able to read it and say, oh, that makes sense, we're up. Well, the problem is most times you get data that says we're up, you don't ask the next question of why, where, is this hiding, are we one customer covering up for the losses of 90? And should we address the 90 that are over here? Like those are the things that we don't ask ourselves right now and management doesn't ask ourselves. And smaller companies, there it's fewer people making those decisions with that information. Um, so it's just like a data literacy of understanding what isn't before them and how to read what is before them. So that's like really step one is, do I understand what data is telling me? And the other step is like the tech. You said, how many startups don't have a website? The question that I kept on being asked when I didn't have a website is why? Well, I know my customer base and I've known them for nearly my entire life. 
me putting up a website doesn't really address the thing when I can just call them. But what ended up happening was because investors are only looking for a website, we ended up having to build a website, right? So part of it is saying, what are those tech solutions out there? And do they bring in me value? So I, and, and, and I think that is a, a, a much more difficult solution because you're also dealing with kind of the rapid change of technology where somebody that was, something that was bleeding edge five years ago is old school today. Like I, I would actually say Bitcoin is an example of something of that nature, right? Bitcoin was bleeding edge a few years ago and nobody understood it. Then its value increased. And then people realize that there's nothing really sustainable about it. And, and so that is not a currency, a cryptocurrency that is, has any functionality as a trade currency and to be operating in a supply chain. Um, and so I think that those are the type of things where adept kind of data literacy and technology understanding um, is very difficult to also integrate within business leaders um, if they're small, medium, or large. It just, it's a lot of new things. And by the time you tend to be in a position of decision-making, you're not really used to handling new information. So how do you see these challenges? And as well, I'm sure that through the, 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 the companies that you're approaching and even through the, the, the legacy systems that you mentioned to the new startups that we are looking from companies that are looking at data um, management and data solutions related to the problems that we have, how do you see this bridge? Because I think the problem that I feel at least actually I'm writing a new book that is precisely talking about how instead of looking at the problems, how can we look at solutions? And I think this is very important. And I see that you have uh, uh, some blog posts actually talking about that. But how do you go from this, let's say how, uh, one of the last blog posts you have is how organizations can tackle changes in the distribution landscape. So I would want, I would, can we do this using these tools? And like you said, a huge part of this is education. But as well as building a business, because in the end of the day, like you said, if you don't have a business that makes money, you have a problem. And I think the challenge is how do you bridge these two parts? You need to set an expectation in an organization that iteration is good. Failure is okay because you only learn from your fails, right? Um, if somebody does something and it succeeds, they never go back and review it. If something fails, they go back and sometimes review it. So I think from a culture standpoint, that is where we as Butler Distribution Group will really transform um, the way that business is done. And I, I'll get into our, business, our org structure and how we organize everything and compensation in a little bit. But like from from to answer your question is how do we convince people who who don't know what the problem is and that that's a problem and that there's a solution it it really comes to finding different ways of getting into people's ears and it might not be the you know it might not be the most direct way right facebook for example is a is a tool that many companies are using to modify human behavior, right? We're seeing the consequences being hugely detrimental 
in some cases and in some areas being hugely inspirational. But what we need to do as a society, as in a culture and as like a world of human beings is we need to start to work together and finding solutions together. And so that just really talks about how can we find different ways of communicating in which there are lower barriers of entry just to have that conversation because the, the gap between the decision maker and the person actually working on the project tends to be so great that you can't have agile solutions. Yeah, this is key. And I think that is kind of the, the biggest thing actually for all the world economy and society. So, so coming back again to your company, and I'm particularly interested in this bridge because it's quite unique what you're trying to do of, of putting together all these kind of three angles together in a very conventional business, uh, but at the same time, uh, trying to innovate on that. So how do you see this innovation and the business model around this? It's, uh, how do you approach the business and the companies? Of course, very top level. Let me, let me do a quick under, uh, breakdown of how I'm structuring the business, and then you'll start to understand how we put into motion some of that innovation. So when, when most founders create a company, they put basically a good chunk in their pocket because the, you know everybody wants that Mark Zuckerberg, um, or not everybody, clearly. Most people want that Mark Zuckerberg control and wealth. The truth is, he nor I should ever have that much power. Um, and the, the, so what I'm doing with my upside and my share is I'm putting them into trusts. I'm putting them into four different trusts. One for bonuses, one for R&D, one for pensions, and one for uh, foundation. Basically, these trusts are now distributed equally to all my employees. And every employee, no matter if you're CEO or janitor, will make the exact same as me. So my value proposition for my entire team, no matter who they are, is do you want to make as much as me? If this works out, we'll make a lot because we're sharing the upside. So with 30% dedicated to bonuses and 20% to R&D, 10% to pensions and 5% to foundation, what we're doing is we're putting the stakeholders, right? The employees with the pension and bonus, on the same side of the ledger as the investors. So this creates a really unique model where the incentive structure is for the stakeholders. And it, it helps drives innovation because we are basically telling every employee, I want you to be my employee for the rest of your life. And I don't want to put pigeonhole you into a job position, but I want to organize you in a way where your expertise can be deployed in the best way possible. And that's by organizing employees by their skill set, knowledge set, uh, certification, and psychographic profile. We want, we want to put people in positions to succeed rather than positions to fail. And a lot of companies, for example, the only way to make more money is through climbing the corporate ladder, which is really just about climbing a ego ladder rather than a business ladder. So we want to make sure that we build a business that is sustainable, that doesn't necessarily focus on hierarchy, but focuses on having the right people address the right problem at the right time. 
And, and that is kind of how we build into like innovation. And by, out, by putting 20% of the distributions out for R&D, we are not only kind of saying we are focused on R&D, but we're putting our money where our mouth is. Um, because I think a lot of long-term solutions are ignored because to make a budget look clean, take out R&D and take out bonuses, take out pensions. You, you all of a sudden have a very stripped down company, but for us, we have a stripped down company that will have that externalized. Um, and, and that really is kind of a big difference about innovation is we're innovative in our structure, everything else. So if we're 20 people or if we're 5,000 people, and no matter how big we scale, we still have that innovation engine driving. Now that is impressive. And actually it's something that I, I completely subscribe. It's not easy though, <laughs> because you have to make a, a huge uh, alignment between the narrative and the story that you build the company, but at the same time, explain things. So I, I would like to touch this because it's quite unique and I think you are probably my first person in, in 70 interviews who are touching one area that is very dear to me. So mm -hmm. how do you go, because for instance, if you look at, uh, uh, well, you are in Seattle and you have the Amazon model of management, which is very, um, very focused on not respecting so much because there's the pyramid and then there's the rest of the, the rest of the organization. Um, and as well, this is called actually even uh, the, I think the, the corporate, uh, I would say that is the, I think, what's the name, gladiator culture. And I think the gladiator culture is particular scary. And as well, for us, there was a study recently that say, stated that, uh, for us, in the 50s in, in the United States, the CEO uh, was around maximum 15, 20%. At, I'm talking about CEOs of big corporations. Mm -hmm. uh, the salary would be maximum 15, 20%, uh, the rest of the rest of the, uh, um, in terms of the rest of the society of the, the employees. And now we're talking about thousands of times. You have CEOs that make hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, and just because of being the CEO. And I've been actually in a position where I was paid because of being CEO, quite substantial. And for me, it's always something that gets me crazy. So, but how do you go from that paradigm that is like the corporate paradigm to the SME paradigm and then the startups innovation? And do you make a balance? Because the problem is that we have this extreme, your extreme that you are, that I completely subscribe. And then the rest, the rest of the world is just trying to survive, which is kind of 90% of the world population. Yeah, so one of the, the ways that you can do the bridge is, is just focus on what are you solving by hiring people, right? At the end of the day, we are all trying to fill jobs, fill positions and stuff like that because there is a need for certain expertise. Maybe that expertise is selling, maybe that expertise is marketing, whatever it may be. You are trying to figure out how to hire the best person. And... At that point, when you break down what you actually want, it's not that you want to, like, you want the best results. And so if you pay somebody to deliver the best results, guess what their, their expectation is? To deliver the best results. And I think with the gladiator style, it's not about the best results. It's good enough, right? It's always just good enough to beat out whoever you're competing with. And when you have internal competitions, you tend to also have 
uh, and bad behavior that gets associated, right? Um, people cut corners. They don't think about the ethical and moral consequences of their actions. And we want to hold people to a higher standard by having a higher standard at, right off the get-go. And if you always, if you think about like the wealth inequality chart, you know, and you look at this total area under that wealth inequality, that area is the world economy. That is effectively the world economy. So the way to maximize the world economy is to have equal pay, equal upside. Because you have more consumers participating in the market and you're having um, those consumers participate in higher doses versus where we are right now, we're probably at the most unequal uh, wealth inequality on a global level. And the distribution of that wealth has made it so that it's highly inefficient. Um, and there's a lot of you know, dollars or capital that is kind of just sitting and not participating. Um, and so I think really changing the model of how people are rewarded and what people are working for um, change, is going to um, remove a lot of the gladiator aspects and the gladiator culture. Because I've, I've seen cutthroat behavior that's led to promotions. I've seen cutthroat behavior that's led to people leaving. And it's, all, it's just not really um, sustainable. And if you talk to most people who are working these days because of the COVID and they're always on call, they're stressed out, right? Like the burnout rate that you hear is real. And that means if your employee is burnt out, they're not going to produce good work and they're going to produce less work. So we're all about trying to maximize the way that humans operate and design a company around that. And I think that that's where um, we, we can do some real cultural shifts. And the proof is kind of in the pudding. If you look at different cultures, different companies whose culture has radically transformed and they've improved their bottom line, you can look at companies like Gravity Payments and Dan Price, where he set the minimum at 70K because here in Seattle, anything lower was poverty line because of the fact that the cost of living is so high. It's a big challenge from education, from a narrative, from pragmatism, and as well from a financial and economical business development perspective. So I would like to, to go right now. Um, I think the narrative is, is fantastic. How do you put this in practice and what would be in some of the achievements? And as well, coming from a solid business that is quite big from three generations, how did you build right now this company to make precisely um, a strong uh, business and as well as strong uh, capacity to change and to, to innovate on the areas that you're targeting. I have been a beneficiary of multiple years of, of wealth and opportunity, right? I have a huge privilege growing up in an environment where I would have the say with just because of the name on my last name, right? And I think once you start to understand the privilege that you have, you find different ways of exercising that privilege. Um, and, I, and I think 
what I learned very quickly on was if I listened to what my employees were telling me, I would have a better idea of how to solve it. And I think fundamentally, when you talk about finance and you talk about everything, it's listening. Everything's about just listening to what the problem really is versus the perceived problem and addressing that. And, and that's where you can start to put in some action. So one of the things that I realized early on was we were going to all these accounts that bought product. They, 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 they bought product from somebody else that say toilet paper and soap. And we could deliver it because we're already going there. And every product that we add to our truck is just added margin. And we're working with other bottlers and we're teaching them that. And so it, it's very simple to let people kind of iterate and learn as they go along. And I, and I think being able to kind of step into something without trying to do, like I, I realize a complete radical transformation like what I'm doing from a business structure is one thing, but from a helping our customers change we can do it in small digestible bits. And that is the key is understanding that every, the person on the other side is very human. So we had a customer who was looking to change their pallet wrap program. And right now we're working on that. And as a back end, I am preparing to have a company buy up their plastic so that we can make plastic cups and we can start to sell that back into the system. So creating the feedback loops that are no longer, that don't, that aren't present in the current model, because as soon as somebody sells you plastic, let's say from one organization to, you know, from let's say Barry Plastics, Barry Global to another, Barry Global doesn't necessarily care what happens with the use of their product in the long run, because their sales, their sales cycle ended. The product left, right? But the sales cycle and the lifehood, the, the life cycle of that product continues. And so it's where that continuation goes and how to pull it and, extra, and extract value. That's what we're focused on. And so those are ways that we can take a very precise problem of how do we wrap our pallets to how do we create a sustainable model where the, the wrap of the pallets, which comprises about 90% of a a distributor is waste. How do we turn that into something of value? And that's what, what the feedback loop is all about. It's creating that feedback loop so that you can create value where others don't see it. Yeah, that, that's completely key. And I think probably the, the amazing part of the work you're doing, and I, I, I give kudos to you because it's not easy. Uh, it's actually quite, and I think especially in an area as sensitive as yours. So I think we, we're going close to one hour. So I, I would like just probably to understand uh, and probably as the last uh, two questions. One is more about your model and your business. I know that you're doing as well things related with uh, sanitizers and health professional and relationships. And, and I know that is things related as well with plastic solution and supply chains. Can you tell us a bit about this? Because it's particularly interesting, especially with COVID-19 and everything that is happening, because there's a huge amount of as well, uh, first of all, alarm, but as well understanding how we're going to be facing all these issues of the healthcare and the supply chain in particular.
So I think when you talk about model, one of the things that here in the United States we have to solve as a problem is our healthcare model makes no sense. It's, it's it, the privatized healthcare system has no incentive for the health of their customer. And that fundamentally is, is where almost all of our system is breaking right now. It all leads to the kind of um, ability to source product and like the way that we're structured and what our incentives are. So I think building a model and where you align this incentive with the stakeholders, that's, you know, the employees, the company, the community, the, the investors, that is, is what solves a lot of the problems because we address the problems of the stakeholders by hearing their voice because they're part of our ledger. Um, and the way that I see how we can help in the PPE, the, there's a huge gap right now in the market with kind of PPE and sanitation. And that gap is small to medium-sized uh, healthcare providers and, and companies. They can't buy the supplies to open safely. The big players, your Staples, your Walmarts, they can go and buy. They, they, they can find 20 people that can go find them product for them. You know, it, when a single transaction gives you a payday of $20 million, guess what? There's a lot of people who are gonna be involved in that, uh, chasing that dream. But when you're, when you're trying to do for a hospital that's, that the margin per that transaction is $100, how do you validate that? from a profit standpoint, from a business model standpoint. And what we are trying to do is take the Pepsi system that's already delivering to those accounts one way or another through vending or coffee water or just beverage for their food service accounts and make them understand that they could sell the last mile of protection equipment like gloves. They, they can do face masks. They can do all these different things because they're already present. They're already there. It, it, from a marginal cost, it's really minimal for them. And that is where we want to do is turn these last mile distribution platforms into last mile distribution platforms. It's just that you have to tell them it is one, right? Most Pepsi bottlers are associating their business with a brand. But the truth is they're just a group of owners that have warehouses that have trucks, they have salespeople, they have service techs. How can you deploy salespeople, service techs, trucks in a way to satisfy the needs to address COVID-19? It's relatively easy. Mobilize the people that are already going to those accounts and putting the things that they need on their trucks on their trucks. Now, that supply chain on the back end is difficult and that's what we're trying to do is to create great transparency from raw to waste and back. And the more you create transparency, the smoother it is. And the more people can plan. Right now, demand planning is off, is unable to be done because nobody knows how to address this market, right? How many people are counting the amount of customers they have to deliver to and modify their, and their, their business model to compensate for that loss of customer? They don't know how to do it. 
there, there are no like silver bullet. There's no blockchain or AI app that will tell you this account will buy X. I'm sorry. It's a relationship. So take advantage of those relationships, the salespeople, the delivery people, and that relationship will then make people want to care about themselves and their customer. Put on the mask, make it cuss, like it, empathy. So long story short, you build business models to have empathy built in, and then you make sure that that, that empathy can drive those decisions so that we can have that last mile distribution satisfy all the needs for PPE, janitorial supplies, and medical thing, um, medical devices. For example, the United States should not have a problem with tests. We have so many distributors that are going to every account every day. Tap into that. Figure out a way to do it. M make testing so ubiquitous that we don't need to worry about when it, where it's going to spread because we can identify it. We, we had to, like, there's just so many answers out there that just all the, the fundamental underlying problem is empathy. If you can't put yourself in whoever's foot shoes and anybody else's feet or anybody else's shoes, you can't find a solution for them. Completely. I think, I think this is a good way to wrap up the interview. So I think I just want to, one last uh, uh, question related with this part of the ecosystem that you mentioned as well building this ecosystem that is based on relationships. I completely agree with you, but this is not easy because for instance, um, right now we have the film, The Social Dilemma, that is highlighting all the challenges that we're facing, especially when it comes to machines and super changes. And as well for us, if you look at the Amazon, most of the processment of Amazon was created by engineers, so the same with Google and, and Apple. But like you, like you put it, humanity is not about engineering, it's about, it's about relationships and humans. So how do you see these two parts and being you as well, someone that has a digital background and as well the building a company that has a, build, a bridge between digital and supply chain? Because I think this is the biggest question that we have or the biggest problem that we have to solve. Because at the moment we have the biggest corporations managing humans as an engineering and the exponential power computer, but then you forget exactly what you mentioned. Blockchain won't solve the problems, uh, and I'm a blockchain architect. It's more because you only solve the problems when you use the tools to solve the problems. So how do you see this part, especially in the ecosystem, apart in the relationships? Identifying the solutions has to start with identifying the humans and the stakeholders who are involved. And it doesn't mean the companies, I'm talking about the stakeholders. Who are the people on the ground that are affected? What is the real cost of this product? Uh, um, in the United States, we don't want to know that. How do I know that? It's because look at our pricing system. We don't, when you go to buy something for $1, it doesn't cost you $1. It costs you $1.10, $1.15, depending on the taxes. So why is not the, why, why was the store not just tell you what the price is at the end of the day so that you can better organize and be better? Like it's $2. Here's $2. I don't want to deal with change. We, we, we're, we have a system that's really based off of maximization based off of computer models. 
and maximization based off of commutable models take into zero account of us being humans, right? Um, I think that is really the, when you talk about the social dilemma and the pervasiveness and the, you know, uh, controlling using the, uh, using social media and stuff like that. What it, it's all, we, we have a lot of sensors and we're trying to put together these images of us as human beings and then predict the movements. Right. And the, the question is, why do we not own that data? Like, like, why don't I own my own data and I rent it out to this company so that if they, if I want to be manipulated into buying a widget, they, they have to get my authorization. Right now, I think the ownership and the stakeholder that is associated with all of our kind of our global system right now is backwards. And it's because we've always been kind of a slight progression from where we were last year. And guess what? If you had inequalities last year and you had unfair uh, uses of power, it's going to be greater. It's, it's going to be greater this year than it was last year. And it, it keeps on growing. And so I think the biggest kind of solve to this is, is giving, it, giving every individual the rights to their own data and changing, the, and changing how companies are built. Because engineers are not necessarily ethicists. And the amount of ethicists that are at these companies is so small because they don't necessarily want to have that self-reflection. And if, you, if you're not willing to have an honest self-reflection, then you're most likely doing something wrong. And I think um, there's some great books out there. Um, uh, I'm forgetting her name, but the writer for Algorithms of Oppression really does a great job of identifying how there are certain aspects that are just coded into our daily apparatus and our daily living that forces oppression and forces bigotry and forces um, racism and sexism and stuff like that. And you don't even think about it. Um, another great book is Invisible Women by Carolina, Carolina Criado Perez. Um, it identifies how the world is designed for men by men. So a lot of the things that we take as truth are not truth and the data is is missing the context in which it's collected and so i think that is really where where we go is once we start to own our own data and we are able to provide the context in which things are happening we can provide better solutions but until then until we have that kind of data literacy and data realization it's going to be very difficult and so it's going to take conversations like what we're having right now or to go on as well as, you know, elevating thought leaders who are not about creating oppressive models. Oh, fantastic. I think you, you touched the, the points that are for me are, are really critical. I, I appreciate your time. Uh, I'm actually quite excited and wishing you all the best for your uh, ventures. It's, it's amazing what you're building. And uh, I believe that you're going to be succeeding because you have the model and the ideas and as well the the theory and the practice behind it. So thank you so much. It's been a fantastic privilege to, to share ideas. 
I think there will be other things. I'm looking forward to see how where you are in one year or two, uh, and as well to 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 well to to see how you can actually solve a lot of the problems that you have. That data like a product flows mostly one day, so that's yeah. a simple way. Uh, thank you so much. I don't know if you, there's anything you want to highlight about the company, but we pull all the links and information. Yeah, no, I, I think what I want to highlight about Baller Distribution Group is very simple. We are an equal pay, equal upside company looking to provide solutions to complex problems that right now we don't have organizational structures to address them. And that's what we're doing. We're creating the feedback loops using a lot of people, a lot of experts and putting those experts in the best position to execute. So hopefully we can change the world. Well, good luck and let's work it out together. Count on me. Thank you so much, Andy. It's a pleasure. Thank you.